Um, let me do this. Let me go ahead and pray, and I'll introduce myself. I'll, I'll try to draw you in. I won't be, we won't get up and share who we are or where we're from because we don't have time for all of that. Uh, but hopefully before the weekend, you'll get to meet a couple of, um, a couple of new folks around the, the U.S. Midwest. But let's pray together. Father, we give, you, we give you thanks and praise that this week and every other week we get to do this. It is a great joy. It is a privilege. It is the grace of God moving in us personally and through our congregations corporately uh, where we get to see the work that you do, which is the redemption of your image, uh, the restoration of human beings. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the tomb is empty. Thank you that even now, Jesus is before you interceding for us, sending his spirit so that we understand what you have to say to us and um, empowering the work that we do. So it's not incumbent upon our strength, but upon yours for your glory and our joy. Amen. So my name is Kurt, and I have the joyful privilege of serving as the lead pastor of Missio Dei Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I, so just a little bit about me. I, have, uh, I, I know I look like I'm about 21 years old. Uh, I'm 40. I've been married for 17 years. I have four kids, ages uh, 13, 11, 10, and 5. And the, the kid mix is boy, boy, girl, boy. So I've got one little princess, and uh, she is awesome. She's, she's starting to become a young woman. And um, so we're having, like, a lot of these conversations with, with my wife about, you know, I want to make sure that I'm still giving her lots of physical affection so that she doesn't look to some worthless boy to get that. But uh, that's a little bit about just kind of my personal life. Um, the, the kind of the long and the short of my story is I grew up with Roman Catholic influence to teenage parents in the city of Cincinnati, and by about seven or eight years old, um, God seemed like a ridiculous concept to me. Uh, this is back in the 1980s um, when the Bengals were going to the Super Bowl more than once. They've not won a Super Bowl, but they've gone to the Super Bowl. Now we're like a we're like a recovery home for guys that are one step away from prison. Um, but Marvin Lewis is a great guy. I love the work that he's doing with a lot of those guys. Um, so, so church and God just seemed like, like I said, like a ridiculous concept. It wasn't until my freshman year in college that I actually was introduced to Jesus and introduced to him as God and introduced to the purpose of him dying on a cross to offer forgiveness. And when I heard that uh, for the first time, the spirit just, it awakened it in me. And, and I, I actually was a, a pretty good kid. I mean, like I didn't, I was, I was that guy that could smoke weed and play sports and do well in school, right? I was the guy that when all the Christians would say, don't do this, you'll ruin your life. I'd say, I'd say, let me show you how it doesn't ruin your life. I, I wasn't the greatest athlete, but I wasn't like down in a gutter somewhere. Just an average guy just trying to figure out life. And God saved me. I've been trying to really put my life back together uh, in the 20 plus years, 22 years since I met him. But my first walk as a Christian was at West Virginia University, and so started walking with Jesus there. Um, changed my major from land management to uh, theological studies because I really loved sharing my faith and, and leading people. Uh, but I didn't realize that, that there were people that read the Bible and didn't believe it. So two years into that, I switched out of there, and in 1996, on paper, 
Bob Jones University looks like an amazing place to go to be encouraged in your faith. So I transferred to Bob Jones, was there for about an hour, and then I realized, what have I gotten myself into? Like, I wanted somebody that took the Bible seriously, but man, they took themselves seriously as well. And so I've got a degree from Bob Jones University. Um, long story short from there, I went from Bob Jones to Reformed Theological Seminary where they tried to convince me to be a Presbyterian. I didn't quite drink all that juice, but I, I found a great camaraderie, a group of men that loved Jesus, didn't take themselves very seriously, held firmly to their convictions, but were unbelievably gracious to those of us that didn't share it 100% down the road. So um, I was ordained in an independent Bible church in 2004, uh, decided I wanted to be in involved in church planting. The pastors of that church planted me in Asheville, North Carolina. So I went through my first Acts 29 assessment in 2006, planted the Missio Dei Church Asheville in 2007, and have been a full member of the network uh, for the past 10 years. Uh, it's been a great joy. That, that church took off. They wanted to continue planting churches. They wanted to plant them in, in towns like Weaverville, North Carolina. I'd never heard of Weaverville, North Carolina, and while I think that it was a great vision to plant churches there, I knew it wasn't mine. Um, my brother-in-law and his wife came down to Cincinnati, or excuse me, from Cincinnati to Asheville, North Carolina to visit with us one weekend. They heard the gospel uh, as I preached it on Sunday morning. They responded in faith. They went back to Cincinnati and said, what do we do? And so God used their search for a church to call me back to my hometown of Cincinnati to say, we need gospel-centered churches that are going to disciple people in what it means to believe in Jesus and to follow him every day. So I moved back there in 2010, planted Missio Dei Church Cincinnati in the, in the center, like kind of the uptown area of Cincinnati. If you live around Cincinnati, everybody thinks I'm downtown. I'm not downtown, I'm uptown, right? But you only know that if you live in the city. Um, and then we have just, just on October 1st, um, we sent out 50 of our members um, to plant a campus on the west side of Cincinnati. And uh, they, their first Sunday had about 200 people. Um, so they, they, we sent them out in May. Their launch Sunday, they had 200 people. So now we've got Missio Day Central. We've got Missio Day West. Our vision for church planting is uh, we want to send out, like we, we want to send out Acts 29 church planters around the greater Cincinnati area and around our region, around the world. Uh, but we want to plant um, church at Missio Day churches in the different regions of our city. So that means something central, something west, something east, something north, and then something in northern Kentucky. That's our vision for church planning, and that's what we're trying to accomplish over the next 10 years. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, just so you know, I, I, I've uh, held a lot of roles. I, I serve in Acts 29 as the regional director for Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. And uh, one of my not-so-proud points since I've taken that leadership was the discovery that we have more Acts 29 churches in Afghanistan than we do in Kentucky. So we're going to change that, right? We want to see the gospel going out in the state of Kentucky and, and seeing people redeemed um, by the truth that Jesus is alive and from the dead. But here's where we're going. Today I want to talk about um, plurality in leadership and in particular in eldership. And so having a, a plurality, and, and 
I, I've discovered a lot of things about plurality, but what I want to do before I kind of share with you what I've discovered, and it's going to be really simple. I'm going to talk about the theology, and then I'm going to talk about the, the practice. So kind of a form and function, and then just some practical insight on what plurality looks like. Because if you're trying to carry um, your church plant or your, your pastorate, and you're doing it alone, you might be able to do that sustainably for a few years, but I'm tired of watching guys burn out, and I'm tired of watching them burn out because they've built a congregation on their own gift set and their own personality, and you can only sustain that for so long. And so I, I've, I've got a vision to infect as many people with plurality and leadership as, I, as, as humanly possible. So let's start with this. Um, how do you understand plurality of elders. We talk about it a lot in our network. I know there's blog, there are blogs written, but if you could answer that in a, in a simple summary, how do you understand plurality of elders? Who wants to be brave and go first? Okay, so shared leadership. Okay, sharing the shepherding of the congregation, good. What else? Who has their good back pocket seminary definition of plurality? All right, even better. Okay, highest authority of the church is shared among men. Good, good. Anything else? You guys like this idea of sharing. Okay, so uh, what I heard was, um, yeah, shared authority and distinction and responsibility. Th those aren't the exact words you, you, you use, but that's how, yeah, I would summarize it that way. Good. Anything else? I think we're getting on it. Shared ministry of the word. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Here's what's interesting about this. Oh, go, go ahead. I don't want to cut it short. Okay, so, yeah, to have a diversity of gifts in, in the highest office. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's good. I, I like that we're on the track of sharing. Um, I really like that because I, I, I do think that that's the calling in the church, but I also, I know experientially um, from being in multiple congregations and coaching guys in multiple congregations and seeing, I, I and and from being a dad to four children, that one of the things that human beings do not do well is we don't share, right? Uh, one of, for many of us, the first word that we learn is mine, right? Mine. And it's, it's so good to have that understanding of mine when it comes to responsibility. But, it, but it's not when you, when you understand that it's not fully your responsibility. So with, with that understanding, um, 
of plurality. And I think we're we're kind of hitting on some of the ideas that we'll touch theologically. Let's ask it this way, because we sent my executive pastor to a coaching cohort with another network, and they they would highlight, hey, we we have plurality in our elder teams. And he went as one executive pastor among many. And as they started to talk about the, the different ideas that they were implementing, he came back and he said the discouraging thing for him as part of this cohort was re- realizing that almost every single one of the men that was part of that cohort will never have an opportunity to share the things he learned. Because even though they say they practice plurality, they have it in, in uh, form but not in function. They, they call it a first among equals, but that's just code for senior pastor. So I won't reveal who you are, and some of you might be a little timid because you might be sitting here with people on your team, but for those of us who are brave, how is plurality practiced in your church? Is it truly a plurality of elders, or is it we use the language, we use the form, but we don't function that way? How is it practiced? Okay, so you you guys have a lead guy, and he is the senior pastor. You are the senior pastor, yeah. Okay, good. I appreciate you sharing that. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So you're shooting for it, and it's an idea. Yeah. So you're developing, guys, and you will have an interesting time. I don't want to make this just about you, but you will have an interesting time transitioning from being in a situation where you've got the lead pastor. He's raised up elders. Uh, It will be interesting to suddenly submit to them. Yeah, very interesting. So it creates a, a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, so the language that we've started to utilize for that is that um, certain guys serve as primary among equals in certain realms. And then you have to discover where is this elder a primary among equals where we'll all, for the most part, we'll be able to push back, but we'll submit because that's where he really seems gifted. Yeah, that's, that gets very healthy. It can get crazy because you've got to be able to define that and clarify, but yeah, it, it's healthy. That sounds like you're, you guys are on a good track. Back here. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. I I hope to. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, because what you, what you have a tendency to do as uh, if you are a lead pastor who's gifted in teaching is you, you kind of lay out a track where you're basically saying everybody's going to have to be like me. And so everybody wants to get on stage and teach and nobody wants to do what I call the leading from behind, the pushing from behind. Everybody wants to pull from the front. Nobody wants to push from behind. And you need that diversity of leadership. And so I, I actually do hope to help identify what that would look like. Yeah, good. Yeah, the, 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 
Yeah, we're gonna we'll talk about that and and in, in even that language of associate and lead it, like that can create confusion that we'll want to clarify. It does. Yep. And I, I hope to have some practical. So kind of put a pin in that. And if I haven't, if I haven't described it, ask me at the end, because I think we are on to something at, at Missio, what we're doing. We're, and listen, we're struggling through it. So I'm not coming to you as, a, as an expert that has it all figured out. But we've asked a lot of questions. I think we've come to some resolution in particular to like answer that question. So. Yeah, even when you're even when the lay elders outnumber you, it creates a, a strange dynamic where, especially if you've got guys that are lay elders that would like to be staff elders, we've walked through that, and that's strange because there's like a left outedness um, that you ha and it creates an interesting relational dynamic. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And how do you sit guys down? Like, you know, we've had similar things where you've had a guy that's on an, uh, on an elder track for three years, and then you bring in a church planning resident, and within one year, he's gone through ordination. He's a pastor now. And he's going to plant a church, right? And so all of a sudden, like, how did he get so fast-tracked? He hasn't even been here that long. He was here for six months, and now we're paying him, and he's planting a church. And it creates that, that interesting dynamic where you have to say, we've all got to check our egos at the door. Yeah, it's good. We'll definitely we'll, we'll dive into a lot of this. So, so this is really good because it helps me kind of figure out on my notes, what do I need to spend the most time in? And so um, I've got the, the theology here um, under form. I probably will spend much more time in function and practice. I want to hit form so that we do develop a common language. But, but here is where we are. And you guys know this. Jesus is what we call the chief shepherd. So that first blank is going to be chief. And I don't know if I spelled this correctly. Is it? I thought except after C. And except when there's an H after the C. All right. I could have just looked at my paper and gotten it off of that. But if there's a chance that I could spell something wrong, I will spell it wrong. I'm just going to let you know that. Um, so, yeah, Jesus is the 
chief shepherd of the church. He's the senior pastor. He is the head and authority. He builds and grows a congregation. He shuts it down if it's not being faithful. This is stuff we all theologically would say we agree to, right? And then under that, elders are what I call the office holding servant leaders. This creates an interesting dichotomy, doesn't it? When Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy, he says, he who desires the office of overseer desires good work. Right? And so there, there is an office. There is something to which people need to submit. And I know we've talked about leadership models and paradigms all over the place, right? You've got the one leadership paradigm where Jesus is at the bottom because he's a, he's, a, he's a lead servant, and then the elders serve just above him, but Jesus is fueling them, right? But, but there, is, there is a place of honor that should be given to pastors, and we're, we're constantly wrestling through this in our church context because we're, we're in the inner city. We've got a lot of folks that um, didn't grow up in church and have, have no concept of, uh, of authority. And, and when they see it, they want to push back against it. So one of the things that we do very intentionally is we refer to our pastors as pastor so-and-so. And, and it's interesting because when you're, in, when you're in our church context and in our culture, you'll find the folks that are kind of the, they're new to it. Because they, they want to call, like, they will be very forthright, and they'll call me Kurt. And that's okay. Like, I'm not going to stop them, but it's interesting. I never introduce myself as Kurt. I'm Pastor Kurt. And, and I do that because I want them to understand there is a level of office holding that's here. We don't poo-poo authority. I mean, Jesus works through authority. But you've got to counterbalance that with this idea. I'm a servant, right? I'm, I'm Pastor Kurt, yes. So talk to, the, to me and the other pastors with a semblance of honor, but realize we, we get that honor because we're here to serve you. We're not here to lord over you. And so there's an interesting tension that you have to hold as a pastor in the church. You're a pastor. You have some authority over people, but that authority should be used to serve them. And the only way that authority is going to be used to serve them is if you hold this up as true. So we, we want pastors that are being shepherded by Jesus. So we've got a whole leadership track at our church. Um, if you are a man in our church, I can tell you, uh, I can give you a very clear pathway from going from an unbelieving man in our church to being a pastor of our church. And it, it starts with conversion, and then it goes into baptism, and that goes into plugging into a community. And, and, and that might, that order is a little bit, you might be a part of a community before you hear the gospel, etc. But you, you need to be committed to a community. And then as you grow in faithfulness and in shepherding, you will lead a community. And then as you grow in faithfulness and shepherding that community, that community will multiply and you'll, you'll kind of take res- redemptive responsibility for multiple communities. And then once you're getting to that level, what we, we invite you into something we call the elder discovery cohort. That is a year-long process of developing guys who think at some point maybe God is calling them to be a shepherd of some sort. And I tell them, I want every man in my church to, to sense this calling. You are a shepherd. You're either going to shepherd yourself, a family, 
people in your on your street in a in a community or you might even shepherd in the church but men are called to take redemptive responsibility of the people and the things around them that's shepherding that's pastoring you do it under the authority of Jesus um, but but that's what men do and then after they've gone through that the end goal of our discovery cohort is we do it we do a retreat out in Hawking Hills we shoot guns we drink bourbon in that order because the reverse order gets people hurt um, but we 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 finish the retreat every guy that's participated um, has an opportunity to to write a development plan and so the development plan is what am I doing next if I'm going to be a pastor in the church what has to be done and for some of it's like man I got to get a hold of my finances I got to shepherd my wife well I've got to help like my kids understand the gospel. I've got to get invested in a community. They're, they're, but So it's, what are you going to do? And then we've got classes that we teach on honing in your theological skill. And some of those guys, so last year we, did, we had 14 guys go through the cohort. Of those 14, three of them are now in an elder development track. And my elder development track takes about a year and a half. And they learn theology. They learn how to exposit the Bible. Uh, they learn how to apply it from the stage, from the living room, and from a counseling scenario. And so we, we really want them to be well-rounded. And then you get to see where do they shine, where are their gifts, so that if they say we want to be pastors, we know what lane to put them in. So, so that's, that's theologically what it looks like. Servant leaders... Some are on staff, some are not on staff, but there should be a plurality among those, a shared responsibility. The way we talk about it is equal in authority, but distinct in role. So at Missio Day, while I do serve as the lead pastor of the entire congregation, um, there are limits where I don't lead. So when it comes to some of the artistic elements, like I laid out what I want response to look like, and so kind of like a general liturgy, but I don't work that out from week to week. But if we've got a switch in it, I kind of have to write that up and lead the charge and cast a vision for it. But, but when it comes like the website and um, a lot of the other integral parts of how we shepherd people, I defer to my executive pastor. Or I defer to the guy that does uh, redemption groups at Missio on how we do counseling. I cast the need for it, like the vision for the need for it, but then these guys really lead in it, and I submit to them. And, and I, don't, I don't get to do everything that I want to do. So we, we practice that. One of the ways that this came out in being a first among equals is, um, well, rather, uh, uh, having equal authority and distinct responsibility. We were talking about our, our build-out. Um, one of the things that we're doing in our build-out, we've got an old space like this, an old warehouse that we're renovating, and um, all of the elders thought that it was the right thing to dig up the floors and pour all new concrete. I was the one guy that said, no, we don't need to do that. We've got a limited budget. What we need is air conditioning in the lobby. And so every single one of them told me, no, we need new floors. Our floors were, I, I don't, like, this is a lovely space, but um, they were in much worse condition than this. They wanted new, polished, concrete floors that would look really nice. And I thought, man, we're going to spend $10,000, and we're still going to have floors. Right? It's not going to make that many. We don't have any air conditioning. We're still going to sweat. It's going to look pretty, but it's going to be super uncomfortable. And then all the elders said, look, if we don't pour the floors now, we never will. 
if we don't do the air conditioning now, we still might do that in the future because people are still going to be uncomfortable. So I said, they, we, we get to this point where um, if all the elders are, are in agreement and in unity and there's one holdout, we push it to, because we don't vote, we want everybody just to mutually submit. We get to this place where they say, this is the decision we want to make. Kurt, can you submit to this? Right? The first is, do you, do you agree? No, I don't agree. Can you submit? Yes, I can submit to that decision because I seem to be the only guy that, that sees it another way. Great. If you'll submit, this is the decision we're making. So I don't get to do everything we want. And, and then the reality is it was the right decision. We have new floors and we have air conditioning because they made the right call. If we didn't do the floors, we never would. If we did the air conditioning, we'd never do the floors. So we have floors and we have air conditioning because they raised the extra money and it was the right decision. But you have to have a lot of stories where you're submitting to your plurality. You have to have those stories. Because as you look through the Bible, there isn't a single congregation anywhere that's ruled by one person alone other than Jesus. It, it doesn't exist. When Paul planted churches, he established elders, plural, in the church, singular. That was always the practice, always. Even among the apostles, or the, the disciples, there is a plurality of, of leadership. Jesus had the three, had his three close friends, right? Peter, James, and John. That, that's who he had. I find it interesting that Andrew was John's brother, but he wasn't part of that inner circle. Sometimes he was invited in, but not all the time. But there was, those three were always there. Now, Peter's the one that spoke up. But, but John had, like, you know, one of the most long, he had the longest um, ministry among the, the apostles. And so you just have to dis discover what is your gift, where is it, who's being the first in this area, but there should be a plurality. Right. I don't want to dive too much more into that because I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit. Do we agree that there should be a, a plurality of, of leadership? And there's probably going to be a first among equals, but it should, be, um, it, it should be in a particular area. Does that make sense? I don't want to rush it, but I don't want to sit here for too long because we, we've only got about a half hour left. Uh, if we have somebody that says, no, he can't submit, our policy is then you have to write up the new, new proposal and, and you, have to, you have to give to us what you think we should do instead and we'll kick that around. Uh, we're, we're actually in the midst of that right now. Um, and because this is being recorded and uh, we're trying to keep unity among our elders, uh, I'll just say we're doing it right now and it has to do with organizational structure in a complex church that's trying to juggle, we have two campuses now with the groundwork for a third. And even though it like looks good on paper, the reality of personality dynamics, it infects that a little bit. And so, yeah, we're trying to figure out who fits where and why is this guy on this team and not this guy. And so we've got one guy that said, I'm not sure I can submit to that pattern. So we said, can you write us a proposal for it? And that's what we're waiting for. Yep. For, for our team, it's it, um, remarkably, um, I think it's because we've got godly guys and, and humble, submissive guys and guys that want to, they want to march in their lane. Um, we don't have that ha ha happen very often. We've, we've got a pretty good trusting team. Paul didn't, right? Paul and Barnabas had a split because they couldn't 
come to an agreement. And uh, there's hope that maybe they restored it, but they didn't walk together as, as uh, co-planters at, at any point in the New Testament anymore. So, so when you can't, it's, it's very painful. But yeah, good question. Um, this might address the question that you were asking. When you're, when you're laying out kind of the responsibilities that elders have, um, because you do have staff elders and because you do have lay elders, uh, I know the biblical paradigm, the biblical principle is those who um, excel at preaching and teaching should be the type of elders that are paid elders. We follow a similar path, like guys that can't. We'll have elders that aren't great in the pulpit but they have to be able to teach. But some of our elders are much better teaching one-on-one than some of the guys that can stand up on the stage. Like, we've got one guy that on stage, um, one of the best guys we've got. One-on-one, he's usually the last guy we want to call into that situation because he's able to bring strong conviction. And with that strong conviction, sometimes comes the tearing down of a human being. And so he can teach really well from the stage, not as well one-on-one. And so just finding out, like, who are the guys that do really well one-on-one? That's, where, that's your lane. Walk, right, drive in that lane and do it for the glory of God. Um, but what we've discovered in terms of who gets paid and who doesn't get paid, the guys that are staff pastors usually fill what is uh, like a pastor role and a deacon role. So we look at our staff pastors as, as pastor deacons. Our deacons at our church are all ministry leaders. Some of our ministry leaders are paid ministry leaders, but they're on a deacon level and not a shepherding level. And that has to do with what kind of oversight are they, they taking. So I don't know about your context, but we, we, have, uh, we have room for female deacons. We find space for that biblically. Not everybody does. I, I get that. Um, but so our, our, our children's, um, children's director is a deacon role, and we have a woman that, that fills that role. Now, she, she works alongside of her husband, but her husband, um, he's not one of our pastors, and he works another job, and he doesn't have a desire to work for the church. So we have a, a deacon role for that. But, like, for me, um, I do most of the leadership development. I do all of the formal theological development. Uh, I lead the pulpits. By leading the pulpits, I mean, like, I lay out what we're teaching from the pulpit. And then all of our campuses teach from the same either topic or text. We're, we're generally a book-by-book book church, but right now it's the, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so we're doing the five solas throughout October. That's very topical. But we're all preaching the same, like, big idea, but we preach it from our own perspective into our own context. And, and so because I have pastor roles, I also, and I also have deacon roles, um, I get paid by the church to do that. Does that make sense? So we're pastor deacons if we're staff pastors. The other pastors, their responsibility is to shepherd people primarily and then, and then pick a lane that might be a deacon lane, it might not be a deacon lane. So one guy actually teaches in what we call gospel school. He's a shepherd, so he sits on our local congregation. I might be getting really in the weeds here a little bit. I don't know if you guys... So we have, um, we have Missio... Day Central, we have Missio Day West, and then we have Missio Day Collective. And so we've got um, Central is our, our first campus, and so we've got uh, five elders at Central. Missio Day West is our church plant. We have one elder there. The collective team is made up of four people, three from here plus him. 
And uh, we've got one, one guy on our collective team who is not a pastor deacon. He's one of the elders here. He helps us slow things down. He's really good because he's not looking to get paid by the church. So his income and livelihood is not wrapped up in the decisions that we make here. It's really healthy for us. Because the other three of us are thinking through, if we make the wrong decision, then all of a sudden, like, our livelihood is at stake here. So he's good at slowing us down, thinking it through, thinking, like, he helps represent the people when we're thinking of our vision and strategies and all those kinds of things. And so, um, but, our, but our staff guys are, are pastor deacons. Have I gone too far into the weeds with this, or does, is this helpful? Does that make sense? Does it help clarify some of those roles? Yeah, and so the guys that want to be on staff as pastors, it's like, great. What deacon role are you fulfilling? What we require of our, of our general elders is that um, you are shepherding people, which means you're taking redemptive responsibility for a particular region of the city, and you oversee the people that are plugged into communities there. So if a baby's born in the north region of our city, I don't run and go visit that family. Our north regional elder goes and visits that family. And if he doesn't, he assigns somebody to go, and then he reports back to the elders what's happening. Same thing in the south. So I, I oversee the guys in, in the center. Matt Cordy, who's our west pastor, he goes and sees people in the west. We've got a guy who's responsible for the east. We've got a guy that's responsible for northern Kentucky. That's how we delineate it. Is that helpful? Make sense? Okay. Let me get back into the uh, function function of eldership so the first thing here um, once we once we have this buy-in to plurality we have to do four things the first one is to determine how you will identify elders how you will identify elders I've shared with you our elder discovery cohort what are some things that you guys have done or seen that helps you identify elders? Because he, here's what I'm convinced of. A lot of times um, we'll get a guy who's just really faithful, does a good job, serves in the church. And so because he's not like hitting his wife in public, we think he should be an elder. Okay? That, I guess that wasn't as funny as I thought it would be. Some of you guys th- thought it was funny. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Joe Mixon. Yeah, he's, he's being reformed. People are, are looking after him. It's a good thing. Um, but yeah, because they're, like, they're, they're meeting kind of the minimal requirements, we're like, oh, you should be an elder. And, and they're not really, really elder qualities just when you compare them to other people. Um, so what do you have in place that helps you identify elders, what an elder looks like? Okay, so guys that go through internship and residency. Have you had men go through that, get to the end, and not, and, and you realize you're still not a good fit? Um, intern, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the residency is basically we are, we're, we're pretty consistent. We're, we're really across the country. Sure, okay. So, so you have benchmarks. 
are they articulated benchmarks or are they more like we feel good about this guy? Or is it a little mixture of both? Okay. Yeah, that sounds really healthy. I think that's good. Because a lot of times you, you don't. You just kind of – and, and so guys will go through an internship or through a residency. They get to the other end, and you're like, yeah, you still haven't met the benchmarks. We haven't articulated what those benchmarks are. And so, and so everybody leaves a little bit like, ah, oh, I just don't know what else to do. So it sounds like you've done a great job. You've identified those benchmarks. This is what it's going to take. This is why you're an intern and not a resident. Yeah. And I know there's always like – there's always a little wiggle room in there, but that's, it sounds like you guys are on the right track. Anybody else have anything? Okay. The, the best thing to do would be to help them make the decision uh, kind of like on their own, but with your help, that they're not the best for that, right? But that comes from casting a vision and laying down a clear benchmark on here's what an elder looks like. Here is the function and the role of an elder. Here are the spiritual qualifications. And so we, what, what I've done is I wrote out here is what we're looking for. We're looking for this type of calling, this type of character, this type of capacity, and this type of chemistry. And you have to have those things or you're not going to make a great elder in our congregation. So, so, yeah, you do have to do some finesse and work and shepherding and helping them discover that. And, and what you want to do is not like, you know, you've got the right person, wrong position, Right or wrong position, wrong person. You got that grid that you want to walk through, but you want to kind of like, you want to lead them to that, and that takes time and care and shepherding and teamwork. And I don't have an easy answer for you, but but yeah, we we even throw down this. Look, you guys know this, but we maybe haven't articulated it. You can go to any church in America. That's a a Bible-believing church for the most part. You can lay out your vision and mission for church planting, and like 98% of the people are going to get behind it, right? We want to make a name for Jesus in the city of Cincinnati. I could go to almost any church in my city and lay that down, and most of the church is going to say, yeah, we have that same vision, same mission. That's not where this stuff breaks down. It's not on a mission and vision level. It's always, always, always on a value level. Because what do you mean by making a name for Jesus? What do you value as you carry out your mission and your vision? Ours is very simple. Our, our, our church mission statement is establishing and multiplying gospel-centered, city-focused church communities. Most of the people that come in, most of the other Acts 29 churches in my city would say, yeah, we're after the same thing. But how we, what, how we value things when we carry that out is where it starts to fall apart. And, and because I realize that and just want to be honest about it, where, where that plays out is in our chemistry. How do we work together as a team? You cannot work together as a team with people who value things in a remarkably different way than you value them. 
So when I talk about we're going to engage the culture, that means we're going to uh, we're going to work with a lot of the people that struggle with drug addiction. We're going to we're going to welcome members into our church that struggle with same sex attraction. We've got members of my church who would, you know, we don't want them to live an openly gay lifestyle, but they would identify as gay. And so we we value the gospel enough to do a work in their hearts that we're going to we're going to let them grow and learn as Christians in our in our community and, and let the Lord work that out. Right. We're not going to ignore that. And so. On a on a values level, some people are going to come in and say, you need to celebrate the fact that that's a gay Christian. We're like, no, we're not going to do that. And then the other hand, there are some people that might like our vision and mission. And, and they're going to say, you can't allow them to be members if they struggle with that still. It's like, no, no, the basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. Are they working this out in their sanctification? Then we're going to make room for that. But if you're not if you're not sharing that as a value in our chemistry, our team isn't going to work. And so the, the reality is, if I don't like you, you can't be an elder of our church. Because we have to have good chemistry. We have to have a similar value structure. And I realize we're not the only church in the city. But as I work in plurality, if I'm going to trust you, I have to like you. And I might not like you because you have a different value structure. And rather than pretend and over-spiritualize it, I just try to be honest about it and say, we're probably not going to do well together. I, I need to grow and learn. Like, that's not my default. But I think it's okay to articulate these are the things that we value. And if you don't value them, you're not going to be an elder here. Saying that, it sounds heavy-handed. But in reality, it works out pretty well. That's a chemi- those, are, those are chemistry issues. And the reality is the Bible doesn't give you a hard and fast. If you are this many, you should have, if you are this many people, you should have this many elders. Th- these are decisions that you, be- the beauty of church planning is you get to kind of, you, you get to kind of be creative with that. Um, the beauty with church renovation is you get to be creative with that. It's a little harder in church renovation than it is with church planting because in church renovation, you're also dealing with the chemistry of, hey, we've been here for 50 years already. Who are you, right? Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And if he doesn't, you need to be able to evaluate, should he be an elder as part of our team? So we, we kind of reevaluate things every year. Um, we have a pretty aggressive sabbatical policy as well. So our elders get a, they have a, a, an optional sabbatical after three years. It's required after four. And it's 12 weeks away. Or at least 12 weeks out of the office. For staff guys, because we understand the dynamic there, you, you got to get out of the church. <laughs> you got to go visit. And the nice thing is now I can just, I can plug over it to, in West, which is close to my house anyway. And so I can be shepherded there. Um, my last sabbatical I had to get into another congregation and just rest and take my hands off of what was happening. Um, but those are good opportunities to evaluate. Am I still, like, am I still called to this? 
Do I, do I still have the capacity during the season of my life? Um, am I competent? Do I need more training? And do I still have a good chemistry with these men? The reality, I mean, we, I think we all like this idea of we're going we're gonna to do this for the next 40 years with these men. We're going to die together. And, like, you want to have that as an open hand. But I've been doing this, I've been doing now, this now for, gosh, 17 years. And the reality is the only person I have a lifelong covenant with is my wife. Everything else changes. Even the relationship with my, chi- my kids is going to change. And they're going to grow up in my house for 18 years, but then they're going to leave and be a part of another family. And so I want to hold it, but I want to hold things with an open hand. And, and it doesn't, like, that can be d- dangerous in saying because you can kind of limit your commitment to people. You can look at them and be like, you're just going to leave anyway. But I think a lot of times we get this, we hold on too tight, we overpromise, we underdeliver. We think these are the guys we're going to go to the grave with. Some of you will. Most of you won't. Both is okay. Does that make sense? I, I want to say that as like just a freedom. Get, you, you might have guys that are with you for the rest of your life, but you might not. As long as your wife is there, as long as your family is a, a part of that makeup, then you're doing well. So you've got to determine how will you identify elders? What will they look like? If you don't have that path, um, you're, you might just be developing in circles. One of the things I, I said that one of our executive pastors has kind of stolen from me and he's made popular among the congregation. I say a lot in leadership meetings, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, but you got to be shooting at something. So just put a clear target in everybody's face and say, this is what you're shooting for. Th- these are the, the um, character traits we're looking for, somebody who's faithful, somebody who's known really well. Like I, I want all of my pastors to know their neighbors. If you can't name your neighbors and something about their life, you're not going to be a very good missionary, and I want all of my pastors to be good missionaries. Because I, I need to respect your life, your Christian lifestyle in a way that I want to submit to. If not, I'm going to be dismissive of you, of you every time you share an idea. And so I'm constantly identifying who are the types of men that I need to shut up and listen to. Because it's hard for me to listen to guys. Because I think all the time, and I've thought of what this should be and could be and and if you want me to listen to you, you've got to kind of earn that right. And I, I expect the same. So um, identify what they, um, you identify how you will identify elders. Secondly, determine how you will develop elders. So you know what you're looking for, but what often happens is you think, this is what I'm looking for now, Lord, send them in. <laughs> And God's saying, no, I'm, I'm asking you to raise them up. I'm asking you to develop them. This is interesting for me because I, my first, with the church where I was ordained was full of a lot of savvy businessmen. They were in their late 50s and early 60s looking at retirement. They've lived godly lives, um, and they've, they've made good business decisions, and they were godly elders. Where I started to not listen to them a lot was on their theological precision because I went to seminary, and they didn't. And so I remember during my ordination exam, one of the elders who was um, a little more on the fundamentalist side asked me a question about rock music from the worship stage. Like, is this acceptable? And so I used that opportunity in my arrogant brashness to school him on the Psalms that had anger and not re- resolution to. And I said, if, if God is okay with this, how come you aren't? Are you holier than God, right? Now, he, he was gracious 
Yeah. yeah. Some of you are like, ooh, you did that? I did because I was theologically arrogant. Um, but, but what that made me do is, is realize most of the older men in your church are going to have walked with Jesus for a long time, and where they need to grow is in theology. So guess what my theological development looked like in my first round? Lots of books. Read this. You'll be great, right? That's how I was going to raise up my elders. Then I'm in a church plant scenario where there aren't a lot of young or older men because by the time you're in your late 50s and early 60s, you're done taking those risks, right? That's just a natural lifestyle. You can fight it or you can redeem the fact that that's just probably not going to happen. You're going to have a lot of young guys who don't know their backside from their elbow, right? So they don't know theology and they don't know character. And so when you just hand them books, they're going to read them and guess what they're going to become? Theologically arrogant. <laughs> and so I had a, a lot of young guys that wanted to be pastors who are 25, 26 years old and they've read everything I've given them to read and I'm still looking at them and like, ah, oh, but I don't trust you. And so, you, so what I had to do was realize, oh, there's, there are other competencies other than theological development. There's like... You have to prioritize things in your life, like going home, turning your phone off, you know, putting your kids to bed, doing those types of things instead of always showing up at the church, always saying yes. So having guys that know how to say no, how do you teach that to them? You have to determine how you're going to develop them. And so what we've got is a year and a half process that works through theology, yes, but we work through the heart of a pastor. So we work through character and we work through competency. And then we see if there's if there's chemistry. But you've got to think through how you're going to develop your elders. Um, and I've, I've got all of this, I've got all of this kind of what, in what we call gospel school. So my elders need to know systematic theology. They need to know biblical theology. They need to understand our perspective on marriage and how um, death ends a marriage. Divorce only sometimes ends marriages. Right? That's why Jesus says, if you divorce your wife and marry another woman, you're committing adultery. How does that happen? Well, your divorce didn't end your marriage. That's how that happens. So when does divorce end a marriage? When does it not? I think the, the Bible's pretty clear. Our elders have, have come up with something. We realize the church universal has never been in agreement, so we hold it, but we hold it with an, we hold it with an open hand. But all of our elders have to understand that like to the same degree because we don't want people going from one pastor to another and getting different wisdom. So we've got we've to work that out. They need to go through some counseling issues. They need to be able to um, unpack the Bible. They need to learn certain skills. They need to have their finances in order. All kinds of things that I was taking for granted early when I had older men that I can't take for granted anymore. So determine how you'll develop your elders. Thirdly, uh, determine how you will assess your elders. Two S's at the end. Yes. See that? If I can spell it wrong, I will. Determine how you will assess your elders. If a guy wants to be an elder in our congregation, he does an initial elder assessment. It's pretty thorough. He's got to answer some theological questions. We sit down with his and his wife. One of the questions I ask is, uh, what do you love about Missy O'Day? And what's one thing you would like to see changed? And if you've got a guy that comes in and he's like, oh, I wouldn't change anything. Well, then you're not leading the charge here because I know we're not perfect. Um, but if you've got a guy that's like wanting to change everything, now I know what I'm working with. So I know where he needs to develop theologically. I know where he needs to develop like financially. How's he spending his time at home? We bring women into that because we, we watch the wives. When the husband answers a question, 
so that we know if he's telling the truth or lying or we know when he's telling the truth and when he's lying. And so and we like we, I, I like to ask a lot of questions that will get people um, telling us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Ask a lot of those questions. But you've got to figure out how are you going to assess them? And then uh, also determine how you're going to submit. How are you going to submit to elders? And this comes in clarifying roles. If your elder does not have a clarified role, you are asking for big trouble. And I mean, we all need guardrails. Uh, we experienced this a little bit this summer when we formed this, this collective team because one guy who um, he didn't write out the fullness of his ministry description and so he took on more than he should have, cut out other guys from what they should have been doing and it, it came to a head at a meeting where he felt like everybody was out to get him. His wife came in and said, I don't understand why you guys aren't pitching in and helping with this church plant when my husband's doing all this work. So they saw it as him doing everything. The other guys saw it as him cutting everybody out. The reason for it was there wasn't a clarified ministry description. So we've determined you have to write everything down and it has to be clarified. Otherwise, you'll get different perspective on what it means. Another, uh, another thing behind this is our elders have determined that our vision for the next 10 years, they want to do 10 churches in 10 years. So 10 and 10 is what they're calling. Now, we didn't clarify what that meant. And so for a couple of us, that meant if we don't plant 10 churches in 10 years, we have sinned against Jesus and we have wasted God's resources. Right? I'm, I'm sitting in that chair a little bit. For others of us, Man, that's a great thing to shoot for. And if we don't get it, we only plant two churches, praise God there are two more churches in the kingdom. And, and guess what that's going to create? Frustration and tension. So you've got you've to, if you're going to submit to other elders, you've got to clarify very, very distinctly what is their role in the organization. If you don't clarify it, you won't know where you need to submit. Yeah, well, you're equal in authority, but you are distinct in role. So when we meet as elders, um, not everybody comes with the same responsibility into those elder meetings. So there are things that are done in our, in our worship teams that I don't personally like. It's not the way I would do it. But I've asked somebody, another brother who is a godly man. It's his primary responsibility. So where, I tr where we, so we've, we've clarified that's your responsibility. And unless I believe that you are sinning or leading people away from Jesus and truth, I'm going to submit. If I believe you're leading us into error or leading people away from truth, then collectively we together, I use the, I use the weight of the elder team to, to push back against that. And I could be wrong, but I could be right. Uh, but, but most of the time it's, look, that's not my calling. It's, it's, it's a part of, like, I have authority to speak into that in a way that has to be listened to 
but I don't have the, f- the full responsibility for that. And so I, I lead our missional communities, and I know there's another pastor on our team that would like to see things done a little differently, and it's even like lobbied for that, and it's been, it's been pushed back against. And so there's a submission to it. And, and at the end of the day, it's really good because different gifts get to be utilized. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I would say if it's not your primary responsibility, bring up issues if you think that there's sin or areas where there should be growth. But if it's not listened to at the end of the day and it's not sinful, submit. That's how we do it. Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. I think most of us agree to it in form, but we don't agree to it in function. We, we plant churches that are in the language a plurality of eldership, but in the way it gets played out. It's just a senior pastor model. Senior pastor gets his way. Everything's according to the, his likes and interests. And so... Yeah. 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 And so you have to teach this. You have to model it. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the leaders that I develop are the, are the elder-level leaders. I don't, I don't develop, I, I develop one deacon. He's our deacon of mission, missional communities. I don't develop our children's deacons. I don't develop our hospitality deacons. I don't develop our worship leaders. I don't, my hands are off of those people. The, the uh, pastor of worship arts, he develops them. That's his primary role. And so... Um, that, that's, that's how we get around a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so here's what I've done. We had that. Um, I, I will hand the person off once I've done what I'm supposed to do. And, and so we had that. And here, I, I'll just give you an honest pain point. Um, I, I ran the residency for our church planter for 18 months. Well, that's not entirely true. I laid it out for 18 months. The first year is with me. It's character. It's uh, skill, competency. Um, well, my role is to get a pastor prepped for an assessment. And when he goes through assessment, if he gets like, if he gets passed through assessment, 
that's the, that's the point where I hand them off to another pastor. And the other pastor starts developing some of those systems that are going to go with him, some of those very tangible systems. Here's one of the pain points that we're discovering. Because that, that's not where I really shine and where I'm gifted, I have come across to one of my other pastors as if his role in development is not important. And it's created tension between the two of us. And so that's happening, and that's where I've had to say, I need to express much more thanksgiving to you and the role that you fill. Because, because if not, then I'm just operating in a senior pastor model as well. These are the things that are important. These are the things that you need for a church plant. Those other things are nice and they're gravy, but they're not really that important. And, and that's, that's a terrible way to treat your team. That's not a plurality. Yeah. I probably need to be done, don't I? Yeah. So we got a lot more things to do. There's th- Let me just give you really quickly the, uh, the, the last fill in the blanks. I won't elaborate on them, but it's this. In Christ, we are invited to come and die, to come and die. This is the gospel piece of that. So there are things that have to die if this is going to work, if this is going to work. Number one, pride has to die. Pride has to die if, if Jesus is calling you into this. So in Christ, we're invited to come and die. Pride has to die. Number two, self-justification has to die. Self-justification. I, I said I won't elaborate, so I won't. Number three, performance has to die. Performance has to die. It has to be service, not performance. You're working from a place where God has expressed his love for you. Right? We, we talk about this in, in Reformation, like, The Roman church is teaching that you work for your justification. The Reformed church teaches that you work from it. So don't perform to impress God. Serve because God is impressed with Jesus. And then you want to utilize your your elders. Number one, to help make decisions. Utilize them. Ask for their input. Utilize them, number two, to shepherd the congregation. Utilize them, number three, to teach theology. So we've got help make decisions, shepherd the congregation, teach theology. Number four, to counsel struggling saints. Number five, to preach. And number six, to oversee ministry. Those are the five things I recognize like pastors do. If you're the lead pastor of the church and you're carrying all that weight, you're probably being crushed under that weight. And you need guys to help shoulder it. So I'll close by saying this. My philosophy, I want to raise up guys that will help carry this weight so that when I hit that road bump, which is coming, at some point it will come. I've got godly men that I can trust to help shepherd me through it. So I want to raise up the kind of guys that I want to submit to. All right. Sorry I went so far over. I I have a ton more stuff here. Um, If you want to take down my email and, like, continue this conversation, it's it's this. I'll just write it up here, and you guys can take it. I hope it is. Good Lord, I can't even write my name.
All right, guys. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it very much.